0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 11 of the Asking for a Parent podcast. It's me, Dr. and it's a real pleasure to get to have a chat with you all. Again, I just want to say thanks to everyone who is listening, downloading, and sharing the episodes, and especially those people who are giving us feedback in terms of how they're finding the episodes both helpful and getting some insights and tips from it. It's really great for us to hear that. I also want to make a special mention to our overseas listeners, because, again, when we're looking at the stats, we're seeing that our listeners in Guernsey, the Isle of Man, Russia, and even over in Kuwait are listening into the episode. So it's really great to hear that our episodes are going global and we'd love to hear some uh, observations from people overseas uh, of their experiences. And we know in Ireland, going through COVID-19 and parenting in a pandemic is really challenging. And it'd be really interesting to hear how other people in other countries are managing that. But as for today's episode, a lot of our speakers and guests so far have mentioned about having small children. And today's guest is a parent of teenagers. And teenage boys are tend to be maybe a population that we don't talk about an awful lot in terms of emotionality and trying to understand their different behaviors. So it's a really great episode for anyone who has young boys or teenage boys or teenagers of any size, because today's guest gives us a wonderful insight into the mechanism of experiences of school, growing up, sports exams and pressures like that so there's something in it for everyone and i hope you enjoy this episode anyway on to today it gives me great pleasure to introduce my guest this week to the asking for a parent podcast i'm delighted to have this week's guest on the show because this is the lady who was the first person to give me a break in the media she invited me onto her talking point show and news talk many years ago and the rest is history she's also helped me launch my book in 2005 and over the years we've become good friends I've no doubt that you'll really enjoy what she has to say, as I always enjoy my conversations with her. And she has some wonderful, witty insights into so many topics. So it's great pleasure to have on the Asking for a Parent podcast the great and wonderful Sarah Carey. How are you, Sarah?
1: I'm great. And thank you for that lovely introduction. And I am delighted to have the opportunity to chat to you again. I do miss our chats on the show and all the insight that you were able to give me, which were basically free therapy sessions as far as I. <laughs>
0: (laughs) If you go back to it, it was a fantastic show, though, wasn't it? It was one of those talk shows where you got to the meat of things. You didn't have too many guests on. You weren't looking for sound bites, and there were... There was space for discussion and debate, wasn't there?
1: Well, thank you. And, and that was always my goal that, you know, the, the setup was there'd be three or four expert guests talking about one topic for the whole hour of the programme, which is a space that you don't get on, on normal uh, kind of magazine style shows. So it was a huge privilege. I could pick any topic I wanted and summon experts on that and learn so much. It really was super. So I was I was really happy to have had that phase in my life and been able to do that.
0: If I can speak honestly, I think it is missing from the radio today. I think there is a, a space for, for more debate and discussion. And a lot of it is kind of sound bitey. And can you say that in 30 seconds? But, you yeah. know,
1: I, yeah, I, I fully agree. And I find myself actually turning off a lot of current affairs. I find it's very much set up explicitly to create conflict, you mm. know, rather than actually to learn something. Because we all know from social media, you know, that things that make us annoyed attract more clicks than things that just simply learn and I think Mm. that's the same in media so um you know maybe executives in in the big broadcast companies you know might take a fresh approach to what they're doing right now but but this is why podcasts have become so popular because people do crave that learning so this is this is the gap that you're now filling by by what you're doing here today
0: can I say again just thank you very much for agreeing to come on okay really is brilliant. So the format uh, for the podcast, Sarah, is that we, we start with a kind of an opening question and a finishing question and whatever happens in between me and the guests is up to us. But first of all, before we get it started, just to situate listeners, we're, we're day one into lockdown part two. How are you coping? How are you managing? How's it all going for you?
1: You know, the first day I was really angry and upset. And I have to admit, it wasn't a good day, you know, not so much for the effect that it will have on me personally. I can work from home and I can do all those things. What really got to me was that I can't get to see my friends. They live in Dublin. I live in the country and I need my socializing like I really do. And I've seen kind of some people, you know, brush that off and say, oh, you're fine. And there's Zoom. But, you know, I was I was actually a bit scared. Because, you know, I do have to mind the old mental health. And I thought, I hope this doesn't now drive me to a point where I don't want to be. But then on day two, I said, OK, fine. Have gratitude for all the things we do have. I am being paid for my job. I have a nice house. We live in a country where we are safe from the plague. So I'm going to try and be positive. So I have a big stack of books that I have been meaning to try to read. So I've those piled up and I downloaded a couch to 5k app and I'm finally going to do that. And I've done two runs already. And the lady on the app is my new friend. I don't need a friends in Dublin anymore because she says things like, you're awesome. (laughs) You're great. Keep going. You're worth it. I go, thank you. I love you. So,
0: (laughs) How long until that gets annoying, I guess. (laughs)
1: So App Lady is going to get me through the six weeks of lockdown. Excellent, <laughs> excellent.
0: So you're you're coping by reading, exercising, getting into the, the kind of... I, I th- th- I think there's a thing.
1: Huge, I think there's a huge case to be made to, you know, set some goals. And I think there's also a huge case to be made for perspective. Now, like I say, if your business is falling apart, you know, that's a different kettle of fish. But for a lot of people you know, let's remember what our parents went through. I mean, they went through wars. They went through all shocks. They went through strikes. My parents were farmers. They had their entire herd of cows sent off because they'd brucellosis. You know, we live in a much more comfortable world in many ways. And look what we're able to do now. You know, I mean, 20 years ago, we couldn't have done this. Sure. So, so there is a case, I think, to, you know, count our blessings. And then for the things that we do find challenging, see, is there anything? some little goal that you can set so when we look back on this when we're old we can say well I did that you know I read that book or you know I ran or I fed the birds or whatever it was you know so that's my big tip.
0: Excellent. And uh, I hope to be more than a campfire guitarist at the end of the 60s. There you go. Yeah. Uh, I'm buying into it. But you've touched on something there and it's something I I talk to most all guests about. And we try and get a, a sense of what influences our parenting styles or value systems. And and is it the books? Is it the media? Is it the ideologies? What we find out is parenting is a very transgenerational process. So the template that we have for being parents are our own parenting experiences and growing up. If I can ask you that, and you touched on it there, that you come from a farming background, but what was growing up like for you, Sarah? And how would you have borrowed, differed or made hybrid versions of your own being parented experience into being a parent
1: So there are the things that I admired about my parents and the things I'm trying to do differently. So why don't I start with the things that I admired? Can I just before
0: I start there and I'm sorry now, but tell us who's at home for you. Who are you parent of?
1: All right. So I'm um, so I'm married, still living with my husband and I have uh, three children, three boys. So that's quite an interesting dynamic in itself that I'm outnumbered on the gender front. The eldest two are 16 and 15. I had them very close together by design. And uh, but then I was wrecked and uh, and always had the sense that there was a third one in there. And uh, but I did leave a big gap. It was about seven years and it was really only when I was approaching 40 that I thought, Oh no! You better get on with it. So I had the third one. So that gap is is an interesting feature as well. And and being a mother of boys, I'm being very conscious that I want to raise feminist boys, is is interesting. And actually, on that. If I can flick back to my parents, Please. um, I'm I'm the middle child. I've two older brothers and two younger sisters. We grew up on a farm and what was a very typical Irish childhood, a rural area, fairly simple life, no BBC, which turned out to be an unexpected handicap in my life. And um, you know, went to the cousins on holidays. You know, there weren't foreign holidays or many of the things that we take for granted now, but at the same time a comfortable life by by many standards, and, and we were the you know we had a car you know that was we had a phone people would come up to our house to use the phone nice. <laughs> you know my father was a local county councillor so we were respectable people you know um in the parish so we had things that others didn't even though by today's standards I'm sure my kids think I was probably living like peg uh, <laughs> <laughs> they're appalled You know, but it was fine. So and then in addition to that, my parents also had a business, a real estate business and auctioneering. So it was a very, very, very busy house. And being one of five meant that you were pretty much left to your own devices. And so this style of kind of fussing parenting that we have now and, you know, inquiring into your lives, there was none of that. You were pretty much left to get on with whatever you wanted to get on with. And I think that had a lot of positive outcomes. So I had just barely turned 17 when I did the leaving cert and went to Trinity and did not know anybody. But I was absolutely fine with that because I had come from a background where it was you were just expected to get on with things. And I had plenty of confidence and and I thrived. You know, I was grand and also um, a background where it was fully expected that I would have a third level education and that my eldest brother had been in Trinity before me, even though he'd left by the time I was there and a grand aunt had been in Trinity. So. I had that, you know, value system behind me that this was what you absolutely could do. And on the feminist front, huge thanks to my mother, she absolutely expected the boys to pull their weight inside the house. And that wasn't so common. That was Uh, new. Yeah, uh, so so she was great. And my eldest brother uh, was a great cook, you know, and and my other brother, you know, I can tell when he's cleaned the house, you know, it's a super job. So, so, that, so to that extent, there wasn't much um, gender stereotyping or, or being a victim of that. I was an avid reader. There weren't many books to read. I regret that because there wasn't a library. You couldn't just order books from Amazon. You went to Dublin once or twice a year, but she protected my space for reading. And when I was doing something, she would say to the rest of them, leave her alone you know (laughs) and and I'm grateful for that probably typically what they weren't so good at and and my mother would say to this day was being physically affectionate and verbally affectionate so there was none of the I love you Sarah there was no app lady voice telling you you were great
0: (laughs) (laughs) there might be something in that why this lady means so much to you now
1: exactly so you know there was plenty of constructive criticism (laughs) (laughs) And um, uh, so they so and even now my mother would say uh, things like, oh, look, what were we doing having five children? All we could do was put clothes in your back and we neglected everything else. And, you know, we should have done this and we should have done that. But I don't judge them. It was a different time, you know, and there were different values. And to be honest, Coleman, I'm not entirely sure if it's a great help to us modern parents that were so afflicted by the sense that our children must be happy. You know, and and maybe not worrying so much about our self-esteem. I always say I was weird before self-esteem was invented. <laughs> <It> <laughs> meant that they were freer to, to be more authoritative and, and freer to set more boundaries, you know, and that we're constantly worrying now. Oh, no, my child would be upset if I don't let them do X. Whereas maybe not letting them do X is the right thing. So I so I tried to, with my children definitely to be more affectionate to definitely make them feel loved um, and to know what love looks like. But of course, I fall into the bourgeois middle class nonsense then, where I do fuss about them and I am despairing that they won't study enough for, you know, all of those things. But I'm glad I have that background of knowing that a little bit of benign neglect is no bad thing.
0: And you mentioned that your father was a county councillor. Would your mother have had political interests in terms of the feminism issue?
1: Well, while she was at home and not overtly political, she would have been the wise political voice in the background. So she absolutely expressed her views very articulately. And, and the news was the sacred thing in the house. And like I said, while there mightn't have been a whole lot of books, newspapers were the thing. So I suppose you know, it's natural then that I did end up going into media and writing column. And that's what I always wanted to do. On the feminism, she mightn't have necessarily used that word, but my God, she really was a feminist. And for example, she would say things to me like that when she got married, her mother gave her a new calf and said to her, always have your own money and never let him know what you do with it. And so I was warned always to have financial independence and I have absolutely carried that through and some people are aghast but my husband and I don't have a joint bank account I have my bank account (laughs) my money and he doesn't get to look at what I'm spending and say what are you spending that in next or whatever for and that's absolutely her legacy to me
0: but you didn't get a calf
1: I didn't get a calf
0: (laughs) (laughs) but you got the message
1: I know. But, you know, even when I started writing my column and at the time I wasn't doing any other job, it was just the column. And the money isn't that big for writing a column. But I was proud. That was my money, you know, and I that money. And and that's always been deeply important to me. And the other wonderful legacy that she gave me. So she was a midwife. And because she grew up on a farm as well, she was always very pro a more agricultural approach to taking care of infants. So the first thing was breastfeeding. She breastfed us and I saw her breastfeed my younger sisters. And that was really good for me because I saw how other mothers of my age never had that and had mothers who were slightly disapproving of it or didn't understand it. And that was a huge handicap to them when they tried to feed their children. And then the other one was she absolutely firmly believed that when you had a baby, you should go to bed and have an old fashioned confinement period of six weeks and really take care of yourself. And she said that when she grew up on her farming cabin um, and my mother was having a baby, um, an Unmarried cousin would come to stay and mind the other children so the mother could stay in bed and now when i see modern young mothers in the supermarket three days after giving birth with their makeup on and everyone telling them they're great i'm just appalled i am saying, go home and i think there's way too much pressure on modern mothers to be out and about pretending that their life hasn't changed a few weeks after they've had a baby and entertaining visitors, you know, I'm making the tea for the visitors and I'm putting their makeup on. I'm just stop. And I, I think that leads to an awful lot of trauma and stress mm. and tears. And pressure.
0: And pressure. Yeah,
1: terrible and pressure. Mental guilt.
0: Your mother, I mean, again, with her midwifery experience and everything, she did seem a little bit ahead of her time, though, in terms of her thinking.
1: Yes, yes, she was. And um, and I I think that came from her own mother who was older when she married, who was in her 40s when she married. And for instance, even things like the approach to religion and the church. So they are devout in the sense that they're quite disciplined about going to mass. And we love our parish priest. And, you know, they were always very um, active in the church. But they were never religious in a dogmatic point of view and deeply compassionate about people who would have been seen as being outside society. And they would always have advocated, you know, forgiving people and understanding people who might be in situations and under pressure that we didn't necessarily understand. And they reserved their judgment for sins like greed, you know, and ostentation. Mm. And not for, you know, what might be seen as the old social, you know, ones of, you know, people splitting up or sexuality or things like that. So I was very privileged to have been reared with that kind of value system.
0: So, so with that template and that value system, how has that impacted on Sarah Carey, the money <laughs> of three boys? Because if I'm getting the maths right, you have a 16, 14 and eight.
1: 16, 15, 16, and 15 Yeah, and yeah. Not quite Irish twins, but nearly there. So in a positive way, things like I made the older boys do home economics when they went to secondary school. Uh, she warned me never go into their bedrooms, which I do the odd time. But I try really, really hard not to tidy their bedrooms because I don't think they should learn that another woman should be picking up after them. I the language that they use. So I know people rail against, oh, woke sensibilities and this kind of things. But she would have warned us never to use certain words about people when We were growing up. And I warned them not to use certain words about people that it's not right. So so those things are now where I do rebel against uh, my parents is they would have had a very strong work ethic. And probably because of how hard they had to work all their lives, they would have found it very difficult to relax and indulge themselves and i give us all permission (laughs) to be a little bit consumerist if if but you know what if wearing that t-shirt that costs far too much money makes you happy and i can buy you that piece of happiness i'm doing it you know (laughs) you know so um so i i rebel against their anti-consumerism but again by my
0: calculations your parents would have had almost four jobs your mom was a, a, a mom a midwife, yeah. a farmer, your father yeah. was a farmer. Yeah, they had a real counselor. estate company and counselor. So Yeah,
1: and and the the shop that they worked in was six days a week, you know, and so work was all they knew. And their peers would have been the same. You know, they worked, worked, worked. And um and a lot of the and even when you think about it, like like I remember when central heating was put into our house. Like I remember an automatic washing machine coming in, you know, I remember the resistance to years for years to a dishwasher. Like there were so many mm. conveniences which simply just take for granted now. Now my mother would say, Yeah, that's fine, but standards have risen since. So she said sure. she would she would think, you know, modern um housekeepers are actually doing as much work because they're keeping up to a much much higher standard, and that we're mm. actually not that much better off, which I think there's a fairly good case to be made for, you know. So, um,
0: so bar the 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 kind of consumerism, I mean, I, I would imagine that work ethic is still important to you. I know you work is, very hard. It is. It is.
1: And and I and and you know what I have, and I think a lot of people though have this today is there's that compulsion to not be idle. So even if I'm not doing paid work, you know. I will attack something in the house or I feel I should be improving my mind or learning something new or even today now, when I went out on my run um, with the app lady, I was thinking I should really have a podcast on that I could be listening to one of these intellectual ones and then I could be running mm-hmm. and exercising my mind as well. And I just thought, stop.
0: But it's it's almost like it become the the kind of the necessity of pride of busyness. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You have to say you're busy. There's yeah. A, and that's, bound upon to say nothing else.
1: Exactly. And and that's why I think, and maybe it's linked with my decision, conscious decision to embrace a bit of consumerism. Sometimes you do have to say, actually, it's all right to be lazy. You know, mm. <laughs> you can't just stop. But I should do more of that. I dev- but, and, and that's where Maybe that's a negative thing I'm doing to the boys. That we used to be so annoyed at my mother if she came into the uh, sitting room and we'd be laying around watching television and she'd be screeching, that television, it's a sin. That's what she thought was a sin, laying around <laughs> watching the telly. And I have to stop myself every time I see my kids on the PlayStation or looking into their phones. Uh, let me give you an example of how the wheel turns, Coleman. So yeah, my mother hated the telly. She'd be off work and she'd come home and we'd done none of her jobs because we were all watching telly. Now I often wonder, what the hell were we watching? We only had RTE.
0: Cosco, I imagine.
1: And once she, so she took the aerial out of the telly and we put a wire hanger in the back. Then she cut the cloak off the telly and we put the wires straight into the socket. Then she locked it into her bedroom and we found a spare key and we'd watch it. And then we'd hide the telly back in the room when we knew she was coming home. But she'd feel the telly. No, it was warm and we'd been watching it. So finally there came the day. When she put She's the breeding
0: telly. entrepreneurs. The, the creativity.
1: She put the telly. I will never forget the vision of her carrying this humongous telly out, putting it in the boot of the car and dropping off with it. And I remember looking out the window and thinking, we are the most unfortunate children in Ireland. Our mother is insane. This is not fair and then about five years ago I drove out of our gateway with the router in the car
0: (laughs) (laughs) you're joking are you serious
1: no no I actually did (laughs) (laughs) it just was the same row it was the exact same row and I responded in the exact same way and what I do with my mother is now I ring her every now and then and I say I'm sorry you were right (laughs)
0: And were your children looking at the window thinking you were the worst they mother? Think... They were the
1: most yeah,
0: unfortunate yeah. children in the world as you drove out with the modem in yeah. the booth.
1: Yeah, they think I'm insane.
0: <laughs> so again, uh, the thing about that, just to get back to the business, this is a personal question and it's not really about the parenting podcast, but the issue around that agricultural thing about busyness being, or, or idleness being a bad thing. And I, I lived beside a family who were farmers and their dad in that house would notoriously... If there was, if he saw you sitting down, he would think of a job for you to do. Go and pick stones, or put a fence up, or something. And I could remember that, you know. And the, he used to always laugh about me being always willing but never able, as I was. <laughs> oh, I, I'd love to help, Mr. Quinn, but I have to go. But that was an agricultural thing, wasn't it? That that idleness was.
1: Yeah, yeah. That was there was issue. always that there was always something that you could be doing. And mm. I'll, I'll give maybe just one exception. And again, I think this is something that we're missing today is that Sunday was the day that you didn't do anything. And that if you should sit around and read the papers and have the dinner and maybe somebody would visit. And I think we're missing that. And I feel very sorry, especially for retail workers and people like that who have to work Sundays now. So so that was the one exception in the week. Otherwise, after that, you shouldn't be lying around doing
0: nothing. It's funny you should say that with the retailers. I just remember speaking to a barber and I was sitting in the chair on a Sunday afternoon getting my hair cut. And I was saying, this is really bizarre. And he said, Sunday has become the new Saturday because everyone is going around to GA matches and bringing kids all over the place. Men don't get a chance to get their hair cut, so they go on Sunday instead. And uh, it was just odd. to. And my mother, I remember, couldn't believe that I was getting my hair cut on a Sunday. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I'm surprised. Now, Even in our little village now, Sunday and Monday, the barbers and the hairdressers all take off. You can't get your hair done on a Sunday or a Monday in Enfield. Oh, so there fun. you go.
0: That the traditional, that Monday was always a traditional thing, but I,
1: yeah. I is so, it was
0: still going. So so being a parent then, what are the things that challenge you, quiz you, puzzle you, The the kind of dilemmas that you might have around... Because you are someone who thinks about this stuff.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm your classic. Yeah, I'm, I'm your classic bourgeois mother, you know, who's really overthinking this stuff. And, and I guess the first thing I should say is that I'm very much aware because I have friends who have children who really do have problems that really my kids are fine. You know, and that's one thing I keep having to tell myself whenever I start over worrying and over interfering, the fundamentally They're okay. Um, But of course, having said that, you know, you you do want them to reach their potential, you know, and, and have the best things that they can possibly have in life. And then you hate to see them unhappy. And if there's something that you can do to make them happier, try to. And I suppose where I would worry is if I see traits in them that I think aren't necessarily going to be helpful life traits as adults. So maybe not so much whatever problem it's causing now, but if it continues, you know are they making life hard for themselves forever? But one of the things that really interests me, and I'd love your opinion on this, is is order of birth destiny. Because I've really seen that. The eldest child is your classic um, guy who's more anxious, you know, and maybe looking around, you know, before he does anything. And the second guy doesn't give a damn, you know, really confident, you know, gets the positive out of everything. And then the younger one, He's a mixed bag, you know, but he's he's well able to manage himself outside in the world. He's good in school and all of that. But particularly with the younger two, I really think they fit into every stereotype going about order of birth. So, you know, is that a thing?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'll start to talk at this and, and there will be automatically people who will say are generalizing, and I am. But just because it's kind of stereotypical doesn't mean it doesn't happen. So the, there is definitely... Dominant qualities of children in the, in order in order where they come in the family, and I don't think it's any interest or any mystery that someone who's the middle of five is asking this question. But from <laughs> the point of view, um, the, the the eldest child is typically very conscientious, sensitive, a uh, little bit deep, perhaps a little bit anxious, and just sees the world through. A, a bit of a nervous lens if I can put it that way and that's not surprising because that's the b- world they're born into and there's a lot of suggestion that the hardwiring of the brain happens in the first 18 months of life so those issues are on temperament and all that and Lacan has this beautiful saying that we we arrive into the world in act three so there's two acts that go first like where you live what class you're going to have, what accent you're going to have, what money you're going to have, and the anticipation of your arrival. So the anticipation of the arrival of the first child is one of anxiety, apprehension. And so the the child is born into two people who are kind of just finding their way around and probably nervously finding their way around. And I always use this example, and you've heard me say this before. The difference is the first child, when they drop the soother, it goes back into the sterilizer. The second child... Who drops the soother? You'll run it under a boiling kettle and give it a shake. And the third child, you wipe it in your jeans and put it yeah. back out. And yeah. it's that kind of sense of as you get more relaxed, your parenting approach becomes different. No. My eldest lad was colic for the first four months of his life. Oh no! We were completely lost, and I there was nothing in the brochure that said you drive up and down the nature road at five a.m. in the morning trying to get this child to sleep. But he was born into the first six months of just looking at people in terror who were looking at him, going, "Please stop crying," you know. And he he is the sensitive, anxious kind of deeper child, and you know he's that kid who'd say, "Dad, does a duck know he's a duck?" Do you know that kind of yeah. way he's just thinking about that <laughs> yeah. far too much, but and and like that, the second kid is a little bit more relaxed, and third fellow is just thriving on neglect. If that makes sense, but the, so there is an uncanny but undeniable difference in how you come in the family, and when you're when you're breaking the mold as the oldest child, there is a responsibility on you because if you mess it up, you mess it up for the two mm-hmm. coming behind you. So that bit of pressure, and then that thir- third child, kind of, and I'm a third child. It's kind of just. <laughs> you just get through on the coattails of other people's work. You know what I mean? From the point of view, they've broken them all. They've made the mistakes and you either do better or worse. But I I do think there is probably an issue around family legacy that is a bigger issue for boys. So the kind of, if if you have a golden child ahead of you, Mm. and I can always remember one lad saying to me, what's the point in me trying my hardest only to be guaranteed second place? Do you know what I mean? So the level of attainment of different siblings can also... Have a huge impact on where you, you see know, yourself. You know,
1: it's mind. really funny you say that because going back to me rather than the kids, my eldest brother is super smart and uh, did really well in college, got all the awards, um, went to America, has a PhD, has a fantastic job. And, um, and I always very much felt, and this wasn't imposed on me. It's, you know, it's just one of those things that's accidentally done. Well, you know, he was the smart one and and i think i kind of gave up trying to reach a certain level because i thought well i'll never do that so i always did enough just to get by you know just do what i needed to do and so it's really funny uh, <laughs> that you should say that
0: and another thing and again as a mom of two two teenage boys at the moment and one coming through fear of failure is a real issue for teenage boys so the, the idea that it is better to not try and fail than to try and fail. I remember sitting at home one time and I remember somebody asked Graham Norton on the thing, would you ever do Dancing with the Stars or Dancing on Ice or Celebrity Jungle? And he said, no, I prefer to sit at home with a glass of wine and think I could do it better. <laughs> and it's this idea that if you never do it, you never will be exposed that you can't. And the, the, there's lots of young lads who I'd see, around Leaving certain Time especially, who just won't get involved, they won't study. And they're saying... If I burst myself, then I'm exposed. People know that's the limit of his ability. But if I don't, then I can get through life as a kind of a misunderstood hero in some <laughs> respects, because my mother used to always say to me, Coleman could do anything, but he's lazy, which meant there was no way I was not going to be lazy because my lazy was my out. Do you know what I mean? So my mum still thought I could do anything. Yeah. But, for laziness. but if I was if I wasn't lazy, then I was going to be found out that this is the limit of my ability.
1: Okay, so on those two issues, on that order of birth, and we've already messed up the eldest child because we were too, fra- too fretting too much uh, when he was little, and on that trap of not trying because then he won't fail. So how do you get around that? What can you, you do?
0: don't? <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I think from the po- no, I mean I think from the point of view of the first thing about the eldest child is they are ferociously good friends they're wonderful people to have around they're very conscientious they think so much about other people they're so powerful and kind there's a huge skill set and there's a big difference between being soft and being deep and we mix the two up all the time you know just because I'm deep doesn't mean I'm soft in that sense so and and I think we need to kind of iron that out a little bit but as for the, the fear of failure piece I mean I think it is about not heaping the expectation of the of the hero or the misunderstood hero on a child so one of the the words teenagers hate the most is the word potential you have so much potential you have so much potential because they hear that as pressure and if you believe in that much potential then I can never match it do you mean and if I do
1: listen I can relate to that exactly because my grandmother was a piano teacher And one by one, all the cousins and my siblings were all allowed to give up the piano. But I kept being told, you have a talent. You're the one who's gifted. And it was wrong of me, wrong not to pursue my talent. And I deeply resented the pressure of supposedly having this talent. Do you still play? So I actually have my grandmother's piano now. And... Some winters, you know, when it's been long, dark evenings, I will go in and I will get out some music and I will play, you know. But I have her voice ringing in my head when I wanted to give it up when I was 15 or something. You'll regret it. And when you come back to me as an adult wanting to be taught again, I'm not doing it.
0: <laughs> but isn't it? But can you, can you relate to the idea of the, the, the weight of potential?
1: It's amazing, you know, mm. as you said it, like I mm. just that completely came into my mind and my feelings at the time and I did not relate it to me saying to my child but you're really smart you can do it if you want it.
0: <laughs> and they're saying I, I'm not so sure I can and that's why I'm not going to try that's exactly you know what, I mean? what they say mm. and oh. it's just it's just a, it's an insight that I think that I've and I've only learned that by meeting 24 years worth of teenage lads who are underperforming and nobody's really knowing why and it is utterly fear of failure it is the the pressure of potential i think that's probably become worse now because we're so much more pressured when you hear about your know, mums playing mozart to their bump because they want this child to be a genius from that like and and it starts so young sarah i mean i, I have a friend of mine who's a montessori teacher and she would say you know she has parents coming up saying why can't my kid count to 10? That kid can count to 10. I saw him do it yesterday. <laughs> so we're already kind of putting that pressure on children that it's just cultural. It's, and, and I'm not so sure in, in me, in, back when you were growing up, that was such an issue, do you know what I mean, in that way? Yeah. Um, and yeah. it is a difference. Well, that we have to be mindful of, I think.
1: Do you know what? I feel like clouds have parted <laughs> and light has shone through. I can't believe that I didn't twig that before. That's a really useful insight.
0: And apart from order of birth and uh, obviously the, the, the fact that they're gender boys, hmm. um, the, I think the other flip side if, if for girls is perfectionism. I think that's the kind of, that's the epidemic of that generation because we, we can edit and cut and paste things to such an extent at the, at the moment that everything has to be perfect.
1: And, and you know what? My my sons even notice that, mm-hmm. and they will always come home from school and say, "God, the girls! You know, they're all crying and worrying about things. You know, and the lads are just playing football." But they really notice that girls, you know, pressure. Up. yeah. That mm. they may, they're, they much more pressurized. And the
0: boys yeah. are in a co-ed school. That's worked out okay. They are,
1: so. which I'm very happy about. And, but again, uh, there's a bit of naked opportunism going on there because, um, I read somewhere once you'd be able to tell me now that girls do better in a single ed school. Um, but boys do better in a co-ed that actually having the girls around just civilize them a bit and they don't want to be shown up for being idiots in front of the girls. I don't know if you know any research that you think know facts. About
0: I, I don't know whether that's reflected in terms of uh, academic achievement, but it is certainly a an urban myth that I have seen repeated in real life. Management.
1: OK, no. so that means it's not true. <laughs>
0: Uh, No, but I I mean, I do think there are, I mean, uh, again, we we may have mentioned this before, people say, is that a good school? Is that a bad school? And we always go back. I always say, I always remember talking to a, a colleague of mine who was a teacher. He said, it doesn't matter about the school. It's to do with the year, the culture of the year. You could have the best school in the world, but that second year group are completely out of control or they're It's a kind of toxic element within that group. And that that means it's really struggling or else you could have a really school that struggles reputationally, but that fourth year group are brilliant to each other and they're flying it. And so it is, I do think that-
1: And you see, isn't that so random? you know because I know we absolutely sweated over what school they would go to now it's a community college you know locally and and it's fine and you know the options like private school and things like that weren't open to us but you know we still wanted to be sure that we were sending them to the right school because this would be this fatal decision and really now having seen them and the wide range of achievements among their peer group in their school I say to parents now it does not matter the the kid either wants it or they don't now that's a good point you've made about the year and the and Mm -hmm. sheer randomness of that but I I don't think it would have mattered what school I sent the kids to you know mine up until now and I can get on to that just weren't interested and Mm. again it could be for all those reasons that pressure I was putting on them and you know opting out another thing about the school I think well worth mentioning is they both found the transition first year really really difficult and I think that's Uh, experience actually did harm them as well they both went into school extremely positive they came from a fantastic primary school and within six weeks the first guy was at home in bits I didn't think school was going to be like this it was simply the logistics of Different books for different classrooms. They had a locker system and you were supposed to get your books out of it. And they were constantly in trouble, not for misbehaving, but for simply not being able to manage to be in the right place at the right time with the right stuff. And that um, alienated them from the system. And so from a very early stage, I think they thought, well, I can't compete with this, so I won't. And and I would really urge schools to try and get on top of that. And Aon O'Reardon, a the Labour TD, he always says first year should be transition year. It should be much easier. And I think he really has points.
0: point. Yeah, no, I agree on lots of things you're talking about. I mean, I was going to say when we were talking about picking schools, that picking the primary school is nearly more important because I do think it gives a kind of a foundational mm-hmm. experience of school and it sets the relationship you have with education, you know, in, in that way. The downside to it is perhaps, and I, 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 I troubled myself with this, sometimes the, the very rural, close primary school, where there's such a warm, nurturing, hand-holding scaffolded experience is lovely. But then you wonder, does it wean back enough for the gear change from sixth to first, which is... And you're absolutely right. Children who are not organisationally savvy, who are not you know, geographically good at locating themselves, who are just not organized mm-hmm. from the point of view of knowing which books to take for which. And, and uh, oftentimes that is very much done for them in primary school. And so the expectation is you've now entered into this where you're, you're your own boss. And, mm-hmm. um, and the gap is massive and, uh, and lots of people struggle to find their feet. They struggle to locate themselves. Girls tend to struggle more interpersonally And boys tend to struggle more infrastructurally, if that makes sense. That makes total um, mm,
1: sense, yeah. yeah.
0: um, But in fact, where the the highest incidence of difficulty tends to happen in second year, because in first year, everyone's kind of a bit lost and they're all finding their own feet. But by second year, there's a kind of a sense of they get a little bit of confidence and a little bit of. And so we would see highest incidence of bullying and things in second year rather than first. But that first year experience, by the measure of it's just so chaotic is very discombobulating for many children. And they find it hard to get momentum and traction. And again, trying to get used to nine personalities a day, having had one personality for nine months of the year, there is a big change in that. And I absolutely think we needed to manage that. And again, I think for the COVID group, I really feel sorry for that sixth class group who were were took out of Mm. school in March and then were into a COVID school in September. I just think... That was a phenomenally difficult thing to do in normal circumstances, never mind, you know, missing out on the ceremonial aspects of finishing off your primary school experience and then obviously going into all the the yellow stickers and sanitizers.
1: There was one upside, though, which was our school got rid of lockers. Because for COVID, all this uh, this congregating goes on around lockers in between classes. And they said, right, we'll do away with the lockers. We're going to reorganize how we do classes. So you don't have to bring in all your books every day. And now they're more stable, more located in a single class. And I was absolutely delighted. But it's funny
0: you should say that. that The amount of incidents that I hear about, whether it be bullying, exclusion, that's situated in a locker situation. Do you know what I mean, And we use locker room talk and all this sort of thing to, to kind of excuse it, but there it must it it acts as some sort of unsupervised chaos. Yeah,
1: and I'll tell you what place. else. So they, they used to have all this hassle about the key to the locker and they'd lose the key and you had to get more keys. So then they just started a culture of abandoning keys. So then they all started robbing stuff from each other's lockers. I would say 80% of the hassle that came from the school was all to do with goddamn lockers. So COVID. Has eliminated lockers. Woo!
0: <laughs> so will they go back to lockers after Hopefully COVID? Not.
1: Hopefully not. Hopefully not. But listen, one other thing um, that I think is important about the randomness of birth, and I wish somebody had advised me about this before, and maybe on your wedding day or before you come of with childbearing years, you should be warned about this, is the time of year that they're born. My eldest son was born in November which meant that most of his classmates, again, to a certain degree of randomness, were born the following year. And in all the sports codes, GAA and soccer and all of these, you have to play by year of birth, not your class. So he couldn't play with loads of his friends. And so he didn't. And he's missed out on so much sport because of that rule. And this drives me insane. And the way they, they organize sport in this country, everything's so competitive, drives me mad.
0: Yeah, Huge is. issue. Uh, and again, the the kind of the difference between a child born in January and a kid, child born the following November is phenomenal at that age. The trajectory, if you think about the, the, the steepness of the curve, these kids have two inches on the other kid. And oftentimes they may be in school a year longer as well. So they've had an extra year of the sport to do it. Yeah, again, it's kind of arbitrary and it's random, and it's. I understand that there's a means to have to organise things, but I, but I, I, I oftentimes kind of admire the the New Zealand approach where they have where they play rugby according to kilogram, not according to age. So you're always playing against someone against you who's your own size. And I think there are better ways of 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 managing children's sport, but I, I do fear, and it's something that comes up a lot. Let me get this straight. I've seen ch- sports save children's lives, mm-hmm. but I have also seen it ruin them. And from the point of view, getting a little bit back to what we talked about before, if that child shows potential, there's so much pressure and elitism and the drive for elitism that these children undergo. And one of the fascinating things that I always find is when a child hits 13 or 14 years of age, there's no casual sporting activity that they can take part in because everything is two trainings a week, match on Sunday. You don't turn up, you don't get your place. You know, you have to go for championships and medals and prizes and everything else. Whereas... I'm thinking about you doing your Couch to 2K issue. You know, there isn't a culture of doing something at your own pace within teenage years. You are well. I
1: I think the phrase you've used before was this: "Is there's no five a side culture?" Exactly. Why why can't you just go down and play with your mates? Now, I have to say, a side effect again, another unexpected upside of COVID was when they were out of school so much his mates would all meet up randomly down at the pitch and play together. And it was really, really nice. And, but another, say, side effect of competition, it's because it's all competitive. And like this starts, like when they're eight, is that on the soccer code, you can leave your parish and play for another team. So even, at least, so at least with GAA, you still have to play for your parish. So even kids that they'd like to play soccer with are playing on another team, on the better team, you know, where they might get scouted. And what COVID did was actually got them all playing together informally. It was so nice and they absolutely loved it. And I thought we are ruining them, ruining Mm. more competition.
0: The way that which clubs invest in the, there's a stat, I think uh, Shane Smith was on another podcast with me and he talked about 1% of a GAA club will make the elite level, 99% won't but all the investment goes into the 1% at the cost of the 99%. And he was saying like that 99% will make, they'll be really good clubmen. They'll be your treasurer your club. They'll be the one who'll organize the car park for the occasions. They'll do all the stuff. And we don't invest in them because they don't show the, the the potential again, you know, and I think there's a theme in all of our conversations, really from the kind of Mozart baby to why can't my child to count to 10, to, you know, being retired from sport at eight to, you know, to the child with potential who has to play piano till she's 20. And, you know, there is, there, there is a, a strong culture of pressure and expectation that I don't think as parents we're immune to. And I would oftentimes think that the avocado brigade who are saying that we have to do it this way and we have to do it that way. And, you know, you know if coconut oil, is not part of your shopping, you're, you're missing out. As, as parents, we're not immune to the pressure either. I think the pressure trickles down through the systems. If you have parents under pressure, you'll have children under pressure. And if you have children under pressure, you'll have parents under pressure. And I think there is something, maybe there's something in the COVID thing that it will give us a break to, to reboard differently where we may, you know, it's maybe a pause button that allows us to reevaluate.
1: Yeah. Well, I see, um, and one doctor was saying yesterday, you know, we're going to live simpler lives. And and we'll be living simpler lives for the next year, maybe. And maybe like I was saying at the start and about getting through this particular session of lockdown, you know, maybe it is something we should try and embrace rather than fighting it and complaining it uh, and complaining, saying, is there a way we can actually make the best out of this and go back to my country childhood (laughs) of living down the cul-de-sac with Fosco?
0: But I think there is something about maybe we have overcomplicated the parenting thing Maybe it isn't about the idea that parenting is simple, it's just not easy from the point of view, but the simpler you make it, the easier it'll become. Do you think there's something about whittling back to that, if that makes any sense? But Sarah, we're we're just out of time. But is there anything else that you thought?
1: You know, there's be- there's one more little one. And again, maybe this is something that other parents have. The youngest child is one of these kids who's really worried about things like time. And and I I think in an obsessive way, worries about things and constantly checking. So if I drop him off from school, don't be late. Don't be late. Are you going to be late? You're not going to be late, are you? And like once I was late and this seems to have preyed on his mind. Or um, uh, last year I came home from work and I was particularly tired and I actually threw up. I was so exhausted. So now if I cough or clear my throat or anything like that, he's worried that I'm going to throw up. And um, I'm just wondering, I don't know, like in other respects, he's, he's quite relaxed and engaging and cheerful in that. And, you know, his teachers all love him. But I don't know why. This these kind of things seem to prey on him, and I don't really know how to approach it in the best way. So I was dropping him off uh, for um, his tennis a couple of weeks ago, and um, of course he was there. We're going to be late. We're going to be late. And I was saying, what do you think is going to happen if we're going to be late? It's okay if we're late, even if we are late, and we're not going to be late. So what 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 can I do with that guy?
0: I think something about that is developmental. So that age group, he's eight, is he nine? Mm-hmm. That's it. So yeah. they love order. So if you watch them with their toys, they'll put all the blue ones together, the green ones. They they like things to be very clear. And the childhood world up until latency age is very black and white. Goodies and baddies, cops and robbers, you know, the world is very clear cut. But they don't do grey very well. They don't do maybe we will, we might, we'll see. They hate words like soon, maybe, perhaps. They want the, the answers. And so he's just functioning in that cognitive space that on time, good, late, bad. Well, good, sick, bad, and he's trying to work the world out that way. Um, but in in some respects, not the trap we fall into. It's childrens who ask those questions is we try to be definitive in our answers and say everything will be fine, it will be grand, we will be okay. And actually, that's not very helpful because if it's not okay, then you're losing trust in your containment and your sense of what you're promising. So, my always my sense of this is. It's about, uh, we have this approach. So no matter what happens, you and I will get through it. And I would use, you know, always approach the parenting of that age child like you'd approach them with a roller coaster. So you sit beside them and say, I don't know what's up here. It could be scary. You might get scared. I might get scared. But whatever happens, we're in this together and we will get through it. And we've got this. And so it's not about snow plowing and making sure there's no adversity. And it's not about helicoptering and making sure there's no adversity, but it is about journeying with them through the adversity so that they learn a skill in the process of feeling supported. And, okay. you know, that, so when you were saying what, what's the worst thing's going to happen if we are late, there was something about that approach was a little blunt, but from the point of view, the message was correct, which was, okay. we've got this, we've right. got this and no matter how gray things appear because things are going to get gray you know what i mean and they and especially in friendships and relationships that's where children generally struggle where you're my best friend and you're i'm your best friend it's very territorial and then it gets into kind of secondary school and it's kind of she's really nice and she's funny but she can be mean and she's so so she's dark and white she's gray i don't know how to manage the grayness of this person because that's the complexity of becoming an adult And so he's not there yet, and he still sees the world in those very concrete terms. Um, But you have to give him time to be able to see the grey. But saying that if it's grey, it's going to be fine, because I'm here with you, and we have it, and you've got this, and I've got this. Something about trusting in their own ability to make decisions. This has come up a lot in the podcast, for people asking about independence, and how do you encourage independence without overwhelming somebody. And I think it's like when your child comes into you uh, in the nighttime and says, there's a monster under my bed, the easiest thing to say is, right, we'll hop in here then. And then <laughs> that's fine. You get a night's sleep, they get a night's sleep. <laughs> what you've actually said was, there is a monster under your bed. Oh,
1: you know I mean?
0: So the labor-intensive thing of going back, looking under the bed, getting them back in and saying, you got this. You can manage this. And you know where I am if you need it. Is, that's the piece of work, but that's where the learning is. Got and it. And sometimes we just have to say, I believe you can manage this and I believe we can be late and you'll manage it. And I believe that, you know, I mightn't feel a hundred percent today, but we've got this and we're going to be okay. As opposed to, no, mommy's not sick or, you know, trying yeah. to hide the fact that you're pale and vomiting or whatever. The case yeah. is. Um, so I was honesty, but at a level that they can,
1: Everything's fine. I just have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> Cue <laughs> Alarming noises.
0: <laughs> he's saying mommy doesn't trust me with this information right. but, uh, okay, but okay. so again and it's an unusual thing to say in the middle of a pandemic but the message should be we've got this you well
1: actually I mean? maybe that's the exact thing to say mm, yeah. yeah yeah,
0: for everything uh, uh, I think Sarah Carey it has been an absolute <laughs> pleasure and I, I just love our conversations and I, I know the listeners will as well but for now Sarah Carey thank you ever so much
1: thank you Coleman.
0: That was the wonderful Sarah Carey there. I'm just thinking as I reflect on that episode, you know, how funny it is how things repeat themselves over generations from the same arguments of, you know, the cutting the plug off the TV or removing the modem or trying to get someone to maybe stop playing their video games. It's a theme that keeps coming up. And another thing is when we're listening to these guests and when we're having these conversations, there's things that are coming up for me in terms of I had only really realized that the contentiousness and divisiveness of the locker area when Sarah had said it, and you know, when I'm thinking about it, there is a lot of young people who come to me who tell stories of the, the locker room being the environment where a lot of these problems and challenges come up. So, this is a process is turning out to be a really uh, interesting learning environment for me and for the guests, and I hope it's listeners you're getting that too. And I suppose as with the excitement of Christmas coming up, and I think we're all of it excited and apprehensive about what this Christmas will look like. I would encourage you all to get your questions in if you have an issue around Christmas or you're worried about Christmas or you have any thoughts about how to manage it or even some tips for other people please send them in to the askingforaparent at gmail.com or get us through the Twitter Instagram and Facebook pages and we'll get to those questions in the next listeners questions episode but I think for this Christmas maybe we just have to take a break maybe we just have to think about what it is that we have this year as opposed to the things that we have not And maybe reflect on how we can make things a little bit different. But different doesn't have to be bad. And in how something is just because it's unfamiliar doesn't mean it's any less. And I think these are important things to think about. But if you get your questions in, I look forward to answering them in the next episode. But until then, take care, stay safe and bye for now.